From 11FS, this is Fintech Insider News, and I'm your host, Ross Gallagher. Thanks for downloading this week's episode and for spending some time getting nerdy about fintech. We're bringing you the biggest stories in the industry from the past week, including Apple launching a savings account. What does this mean for the industry? JRock laying out a framework for open banking in the UK. Were the panel optimistic, or did they find it a little bit underwhelming? And Richard Curtis takes on big banks and fuel companies. Stay tuned for an important note on this one. We'll get into all this and much more in today's jam-packed news show. But first, a few brief messages, so we'll be with you shortly. This episode is sponsored by Blinkist. The Blinkist app offers distilled content from over 5,000 non-fiction books and podcasts in an audio-first experience, so you can easily fit them into your day, letting you learn new things all on the go. Discover a friend of the show Dan McCrum's Money Men, his journey to exposing the Wirecard scandal, all within 20 minutes. Sounds pretty good, huh? Well, right now, Blinkist has a special offer just for you, our Fintech Insider listeners. Go to Blinkist.com forward slash Fintech to start your seven-day free trial and get 25% off a Blinkist premium membership. And now for a limited time, you can even use Blinkist Connect to share your premium account with a friend or partner and get two premium subscriptions for the price of one. That's Blinkist, spelt B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T, Blinkist.com forward slash Fintech. Hello and welcome, LFG people, to Fintech Insider. Blockchain Insider. 11FS Spotlight. 11FS Explores. Open Mic Night. After Dark. Through our podcasts, videos, newsletters, and live events, we have a direct line to a truly global fintech community. So if you're looking to sponsor and collaborate on content that connects with everybody from fintech beginners to the biggest VCs, then chat to our team at sponsors at 11fs.com or visit 11fs.com to find out more. Long live the community. Hello and welcome to episode 730 of Fintech Insider. I am Ross Gallagher, Venture Lead at 11FS, and I am joined this week on Fintech Insider News by some great guests to break down this week's biggest stories in both fintech and financial services. So firstly, my co-host, Benjamin Ensor, Director of Research and Strategy at 11FS. Benjamin, is ever really great to uh, have you. What are you, uh, what are you working on lately that's, uh, that's got you excited? We've got a couple of really interesting projects going on in the team. Um, we're doing some really interesting work for a North American bank, um, really diving into their customers to try and help them build a much better digital proposition that sort of meets the customers' needs much better and you know, helps those customers improve their financial well-being, but just, just essentially trying to design better services that meet those customers' needs better. So that's a super interesting one. And then we've got another really interesting project uh, looking at payment strategy um, for, a, for a bank in a different part of the world that's trying to compete with you know, some of the other firms that we're, we're going to be talking about in the, in the podcast today and, and trying to help them think about, okay, what's, the, what's their right to win? What's their unique differentiator? How can they stand out and deliver more value to their customers and you know, kind of stay relevant um, in this game? So some really challenging, really, really interesting work going on in the team. Yeah, two super interesting challenges. Um, all right, well, look, Benjamin, great to have you. Um, now we have making a FinTech Insider debut, uh, Tim Chong, the co-founder and CEO of Yonder. So Tim, welcome to the show. It's great to have you. Um, maybe you can tell uh, some, of our, uh, some of our listeners just about you and about Yonder. Yeah, great. Thanks so much, Ross, for the introduction. Uh, as you mentioned, I'm one of the co-founders of Yonder. We're building a next generation lifestyle credit card, or better yet, described by our customer as if Secret London, Monzo, and American Express had a baby. Uh, if I ask the core premise behind Yonder, is this idea that we're building a financial membership for city adventurers. For those of you who don't live and breathe fintech all the time, we kind of forget that financial products aren't the end goal for consumers. And they're actually a gateway to help you achieve certain things in your life. If you think about a mortgage, a mortgage isn't the end goal, hopefully not. Uh, the end goal is really to get a home and mortgage plays an important role in helping you get your home. And we kind of think about the same way about credit cards as well. And we often forget that one of the first ever credit cards created was actually called Diners Club. And it came from this experience of a individual essentially forgetting to have money for his restaurant bill and he's getting IOU through um, the restaurant. And so that was the former early formations of Dinos Club. And we kind of think about the same concept of actually credit cards, even financial products really play an important role in helping you achieve 
great things in your in your life. And, and for us, we really want to help play an important role in helping young city adventurers get the best out of their cities. And and as you kind of mentioned before, we're super uh, fortunate to have publicly announced our Series A of sixty-two and a half million pounds of equity and debt. Uh, and, and really, really excited to, to launch our, our new crowdfund as well, which has been really exciting, especially in these times where fintechs are going through tough times. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and we'll get into some of that um, news as, as, as we go through, Tim. And I love that point about financial products as, as gateways. And I suppose almost going back to basics to think through actually what is the problem that they're solving for users and how could you do that better? So um, really, really cool. And look, thank you for joining the show and, and, and sharing all of your experiences and your insights. It's great to have you. And finally, we have a, a very welcome return to FinTech Insider for Nalixa Devlukia, Chair of the Open Finance Association. So Nalixa, Welcome back to the show. Great to have you. Maybe you can just remind our listeners uh, a little bit about you and, and, and your role as well at the Open Finance Association. Of course. So uh, thank you very much for inviting me back. Um, Tim, congratulations on your funding. And um, just the Open Finance Association. We are a fairly new membership industry body. Uh, we are made up of fintechs on the demand side of the open banking ecosystem, all regulated firms both in the UK and the EU. And our priorities are working towards an open banking ecosystem that works well for everybody and then moving the conversation onwards so that we move into this sphere of open finance. Yeah, and look, it's such a hot topic at the minute as well. And definitely, I know something we'll get into a little bit deeper as we go through the show. So, Alexa, thanks thanks for coming back. Thanks for joining us again. It's great to have you. So with that, let's, uh, let's dive right in. Let's get into the news. So our first story comes from Yahoo Finance with a headline, and I don't know where else we could have started this week. Apple launches high-yield savings account with Goldman in payments push. So... Apple is launching a high-yield savings account for Apple Card holders in partnership with Goldman Sachs, marking the tech company's latest foray into payments. The accounts offer an annual percentage yield of 4.15%, which Apple says is 10 times the national average, citing company data. The accounts can be filled with customers' daily cash rewards from Apple Cards or funds from uh, another bank account. They can also connect directly to Apple Wallet. Payments are part of Apple's growing services business that has more than quadrupled annually in revenue since Apple Pay launched in 2014. Now, we put out the question uh, to our listeners on both LinkedIn and Twitter, is Apple now a fintech? Um, Amazingly, we got more than a thousand votes. 63% said yes, Apple is a fintech. 37% said no, Apple is not a fintech. So I'm keen, maybe Benjamin, if we start with you, what are your thoughts on is Apple a fintech? And then what was your reaction maybe more generally to this story? Apple Pay, Apple Card, of course it's a fintech. Um, I mean, fundamentally, Apple is an experience company. Apple is all about delivering great experiences to its customers. Um, but part of the way it does that is by enabling financial experiences, most obviously Apple Pay, but also all these other things. Um it's a logical move for for Apple and Goldman to attract deposits. Um, you know, particularly if you've got a card business, you know, you, you want assets to offset your liabilities and so on. So it's a totally logical business uh, move. High interest rates accounts appealing in this you know rising rate environment. Uh, I'm sure that it will be successful. Apple has so many big fans. You know, there are people who are just massive Apple fans and some of those will happily sign up and move money in. Apple and Goldman, you know, such a strong combination. Um, So yeah, Apple is a fintech. Apple's been a fintech for a while. I mean, obviously Apple's a big tech. Big tech has been interested in fintech for a while. Big tech has moved into fintech. If you didn't notice that, where have you been? Um, Apple will keep moving deeper. I think this is US only. Um, incidentally, I think the reporter has got a bit confused about payments versus savings, but whatever. <laughs> um, but yes, Apple is a big player. Um, and I think a lot of companies should be scared about what Apple is doing and what Apple could do. Yeah, one thing that I think is really interesting is you mentioned, Benjamin, obviously, about the, the high interest rate environment. I wonder maybe... Um, Alexa, are, are, do, do you get the sense that banks are almost making it too easy for companies like Apple to come in and sort of offer these big hook, sort of high yields? Um, and, and, and banks not, aren't really passing those, uh, those sort of high base rate 
interest rates onto consumers, at least when it comes to, to saving and interest bearing products? I think it's very challenging for banks. I mean, I think we saw this when Apple rolled out Apple Pay. Um, I don't know that they're necessarily making it too easy, but I think it, it does mean that, you know, when a big player like Goldman Sachs partners with Apple and then offers these high rates, and I have to say, I'm not sure, is it Apple offering the rates? Because it's backed by Goldman Sachs. So is it really Goldman Sachs rates? You know, and, and that's where I think the headlines are quite confusing in how these things are presented. Um, I find it interesting because I answered your question and I said Apple was not a fintech. Well, there you go, right? And of course, there's, 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 you know, staying on the rate point. Then there's a, there's an interesting, I suppose, differential between what Goldman is offering through its own Marcus product, which is three point nine percent, and of course the four point one five percent that that users are getting through the 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 Apple saving product. Yes, and I, and I think there is. Um, I mean, Goldman's, I'm sure, must be monitoring that quite closely to see if people start to switch. I think there's two things for me that are interesting about this headline rate. One is obviously it's only offered to Apple users in the States and whether it gets rolled out globally uh, remains to be seen. I'd actually wonder what the rate of return is if you actually had to buy a new Apple phone to get this rate um, because they're not exactly cheap. Um, And the second thing is, again, Apple has entered financial services without being subject to any regulation because it's backed by a regulated entity. Um, And that seems to be the Apple operating model. And I do wonder how long that will be sustainable for Apple, particularly in UK and EU markets, if it chooses to come here with these products uh, beyond Apple Pay. I, th- I think Apple will be very careful not to get regulated because I think I imagine the last thing Apple wants is to be regulated like a bank. So, Alexa, you make a great point there. I think Apple is being very careful. These are Goldman products, uh, as you say, it's Goldman's license. I think Apple will be very, very careful not to cross that line, precisely because the last thing it wants is bank regulators crawling all over it. That's a nightmare if you're not used to it, if you're not set up for it, right? I think it's interesting to your point as well is that. Um, right now, it, the product is essentially a distribution channel. It's nothing more than just a distribution channel. And Apple typically say it is either primarily a pure technology play or harnessing its huge user base as a distribution channel for Goldman's financial products. What's more interesting is to see how they move down the stack into sort of the scope of the more gnarly parts of fintech. So that's KYC, credit underwriting, balance sheet risk, collections, recoveries, and it's interesting to see things like the setup of Apple Financial LLC and see how that changes where they take things longer term as they look to go into the, I've just got as more gnarly parts of building a fintech business, uh, whether regardless of whether you want to call them a fintech or not, it doesn't matter actually. What they are doing though is creating an interesting dynamic in the market where they have a huge distribution channel and they have huge leverage over large institutional banks as well. And so it'd be very interesting to see over the next sort of 24 months as well, are they going to just stay where they are as a pure technology distribution play or move down the stack into the more difficult parts of building a financial service company? Why, why would they do that, though? Because to me, Apple's operating model is all about creating great customer experiences. Unless Apple thinks, hey, we can do KYC far better than anyone else because, you know, for example, we can see where people's phones are and so on. Um, I don't know why they would move down the stack uh, unless that's going to make a better experience for their customers. I think it's interesting is why they are doing that with our buy now, pay later, where they're doing that. It looks like they're doing that on balance sheet. I don't know if that's factually true, but it looks like they have licenses, lending licenses through Apple Financial LLC. Unclear where the capital comes from, but it looks like they have state lending licenses worth fact-checking yeah it's i mean it's a really interesting one i think what's what's really cool about this though is you can open it up you know apple users can open this up right from the wallet you know they can start topping it sort of tops up from their daily cash or they can top it up from another account and so i guess if you're already in the apple ecosystem that feels like especially when you consider that um the 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 interest rate you know that sounds like a no-brainer Alexa, do you, do you get the sense that this has the potential to, to sort of attract what are currently non-Apple users into the Apple ecosystem? Well, I mentioned the cost of an Apple phone, didn't I? So we'll, we'll wait and see. But I think what to me is interesting about this is that um, 
and this is the partnership, isn't it, between Apple and um, Goldman Sachs, is that drive to get customers. You know, and I don't know the dynamics, the commercials, but I'm sure that, you know, that there's benefit here for all parties. Uh, and from a customer experience, I mean, all of us would probably want 4% or whatever is on our savings today, wouldn't we? It, it, it's really attractive. And that customer experience, and we'll come on to that because obviously it's, it's across financial services and open banking, is key. It's so easy, I assume. Obviously, I can't do it. But anything we do on our phone, and if it's a really good app-to-app customer experience or in-app experience, um, we just carry on doing it, don't we? And that is the one thing that Apple excels at. Um, you know, Ben mentioned it, it's fantastic customer experience. They they design those experiences so well, but Benjamin, there's there's obvious benefits here for uh, for Goldman as well, right, in terms of increased deposits. Yeah, I mean, if you're a bank and you're looking for a distribution channel, like, why wouldn't you want to partner with Apple? I mean, almost who better to partner with uh, than Apple? I mean, who's got more clout with consumers worldwide? Um, they obviously banking is licensed nationally, but yeah, you know, has Amazon got more customers? Has Microsoft got customers? I mean, Apple has got a big and loyal fan base. You know, a lot of people love Apple, um, and, you know, for very good reason. Well, it's, I mean, it's its a sort of, I suppose, a, it's out on its own as a, a really sort of iconic brand. And I suppose there's a, there's a trust element there. Obviously, they've done a huge amount with the devices and campaigns around sort of security and all of that sort of stuff. I wonder, though, Tim, going back to that sort of that really high interest rate, do you get the sense that this might actually spur a little more competition in that space? Are we going to see other banks push sort of higher yield products in an attempt to actually sort of acquire more customers how do you think it plays out in that sense i think that i'd initially see probably a bit of a wait and see and see how this impacts whether you see actually people moving deposits out uh, i think the second thing as well is you know ultimately apple's end game is, is i don't think they want to build a bank i think they want to do is drive more stickiness in the ecosystem and what apple do really really well is everything works so well together both their hardware software operating system and then all the app ecosystem on top of that, it would seem to pay that actually they would sacrifice margin on the financial product side to actually ultimately drive stickiness in the core ecosystem, which is selling more iPhones and driving stickiness onto the core ecosystem. And so strategically, it feels like that's the goal for them. And so whether they, they don't actually need to suck everyone else's deposits up, they actually just need to have enough stickiness in the ecosystem. And Actually, now that you've got an Apple savings account there, now you're in, you're further deeper into the ecosystem. And even if you decide to move it out, well, actually you're now part of that. And now you now recognize Apple as more than just a payment device, but also as a product that can provide more than payments. And this could just temporarily be an important play to just get people to really go deeper into the ecosystem and not necessarily with the goal of being a long-term savings account. I just don't know or don't think that Apple's long-term goal is to be a long-term savings account um, rather than actually just using this as a way. It's like, almost like a, a doorway to get people into engage with Apple in a much deeper way in their financial life. Yeah, and I think that's a really interesting point. And so, Benjamin, maybe as our sort of uh, our, our industry guru, um, final word to you on this one. Where do you think this? Where do you think this goes from here? I mean, we've seen Apple Card, Apple Cash, Apple Savings. Um, is this part of a bigger play? What do you think is coming next? I think Tim's spot on that this is about getting people to be more loyal to the Apple ecosystem. You know, if you start using, if you're using Apple Pay and you're using Apple Card and you're using Apple savings accounts and so on, you're just not going to switch to Android. Um, where it goes next, I mean, there's a number of directions they could go. They could they could go further in the lending thing, as, as, as Tim was speculating earlier. They they could go into into wealth. I think it's really a question of what's what's going to make people more loyal to the Apple ecosystem. Payments is so obvious because it's so connected to all the things that we do in the ecosystem, you know, downloading apps, playing on apps, all, you know, everything, that all the commerce that takes place. Um, as you start moving to other areas, you know, is Apple going to do mortgages? Well, we don't really buy our houses through our phones yet, sort of, but, you know, so I think 
I think it'll take a while. We may see Apple moving into a few other markets, right? Can it move into other developed economies, particularly ones where Goldman Sachs is present and they've got the license there? None of them are as big. None of them are as exciting. Um, Wealth would be super interesting, but I don't think they'll go there because it's too far from their core. So I didn't answer your question. No, well, you threw out some you threw out some <laughs> interesting ideas, which I think will be something that we will um, absolutely keep an eye on. Um, okay, I'm going to move us on with that to our next story. This one comes from City AM with a headline: Open banking boost as UK regulators vow to support innovation and consumer protection. So the Joint Regulatory Oversight Committee, or the JROC, has laid out its plans for the future of open banking and open finance in the UK. So under proposals announced this week, a new long-term regulatory framework will be established to secure the, quote, existing achievements of open banking and, quote, unlock its future potential. A new body will be created to help oversee the next phase of development, replacing the OBIE, or the Open Banking Implementation Entity. Additionally, the report sets out the principles which will guide the long-term regulatory framework, The regulators have identified five areas of focus over the next few years. These include mitigating the risks of financial crime by enabling better collection of data and ensuring effective consumer protection through beefing up dispute resolution mechanisms. So, Nalixia, it makes sense, I think, to come to you first on this one. Um, Maybe you can just start by sharing your your sort of your big takeaway, I guess, from this uh, from this roadmap. Of course. So. At the Open Finance Association, we're obviously very pleased to see that this report has finally been published. Um, We are of the view that it sets out a comprehensive long-term framework to build a a sustainable open finance ecosystem in the UK. And I will just uh, echo the words of Andrew Griffith, the EST, who launched the report at uh, IFGS on Monday which and he basically said that this will be the year of delivery of the next generation of open banking. I think it's absolutely brilliant that open banking uh, and Andrew Giveth's also name-checked open finance has now got government ministerial backing, um, a plan from the regulators, the cohort of regulators that we have in the UK, because it's the the, uh, FCA, the Financial Conduct Authority, the PSR, the Payment System Regulator, and the CMA, the Competition Markets Authority, uh, and HMT. So those four bodies make up JROC, who published the report. So it's great that we have that consensus as well. Um, And we're very pleased by the fact that it's addressing the known issues within the ecosystem, It's also looking at the future and it's name-checked two things that from an open um, finance association perspective are important, which is variable recurring payments and also addressing the non-order items uh, within the open banking ecosystem. Uh, And the non-order items, just to clarify, is that uh, within the open banking ecosystem, uh, where we have the CMA9 banks subject to the CMA order, there is a obligation on them to do more and slightly different to what is in the payment services regulations. And there is a need within that ecosystem to provide better functionality, better performance, um, and it's it's those things that are for the better ecosystem that are in the umbrella of non-order items. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because, of course, the UK, I suppose, was such an early leader um, in this space. And then, you know, there's there's a number of different countries, regions now that, you know, you could even argue have actually overtaken us. This is clearly about sort of driving a, a, a step change, really, and, and, and looking towards that next generation, as you said. So who do you think will be, I guess, some of the biggest winners from, from this? All parts of the ecosystem. It's going to be beneficial for end consumers. It's going to be beneficial for businesses. It's going to be um, beneficial for the participants within the ecosystem. And at the end of the day, all of that is beneficial for UK PLC. Uh, we have... Um, a regulatory mandate already from the payment system regulator to promote account-to-account payments. There is a mandate um, that they want competition to cards and 
Therefore, open banking is account-to-account payments. It is that competition. And if we have a well-functioning um, ecosystem that takes get, gets rid of all the glitches that we currently have and puts us on a sustainable footing, then we're going to meet those regulatory aspirations as well. And obviously, there's quite a lot of detail uh, within that report that uh, we can discuss. Yeah, I think it's so interesting because I know particularly some of the more progressive fintechs have been asking for you know, this step change, I guess, for quite a while. Um, they wanted to sort of push, I suppose, the boundaries of our ambition in terms of like what's possible, what can we enable through open banking, open finance. Would you say that um, they've actually been pleasantly surprised with how progressive um, this roadmap is? I think there are parts of the ecosystem that would say it's not progressive um, because it's addressing the issues that are already there but it's setting the foundations for the future. It's taken the work of the strategic working group uh, that published a report uh, end of last year. And um, that was a a comprehensive few hundred pages and and given it a regulatory lens and put it into, I think this is 50 pages, so it's a little bit more manageable. And as I say, it's looking to address the fact that we have problems within the ecosystem, we have friction in the ecosystem, we have badly performing APIs. Um, And it's a shame, actually, that we are in a place where we welcome uh, a document and a mandate that says that we have to have levelling up and we have better performing APIs when the current law says that they have to perform equivalently to online banking systems they have to perform for the cma in accordance with the cma order and so i think if there is a slight challenge there back on this report it would be the fact that actually the enforcement that is necessary in order to have that better performance hasn't taken place and it should be a focus for the future as well yeah no for sure um tim i mean you know, you guys use open banking, really keen to sort of bring you in, um, get your reaction to this news. And I suppose, um, same question, how, how, how do you feel about how ambitious or how progressive uh, these, uh, these moves have been? Yeah, I think um, as a user of open banking, excited about the prospects. On the flip side, cautiously optimistic, because I think the key thing is actually, I'm a product guy at heart, like execution really matters. And if open banking delivered all the things it said it would as of today, it would be fantastic. But as a product built on open banking rails, it is not 100% reliable. It really struggles with edge cases. Uh, as much as we love to design everything around open banking, we can't. We have to have built a lot of fallbacks because open banking goes down a lot. The inconsistencies in APIs, there is a lot of things that just don't work as well as it should be prescribed. And so, Cautiously excited. I think we benefit a lot from using open banking both on the access to account information to do underwriting, but also to support payments as well. Um, we actually get excited about account to account payments. We always have believed that our role isn't actually a building a card product, but actually we always, we always describe it as this idea of a financial membership because actually card is just, or even a wallet is just a way to pay. Um, the nice thing about obviously the card network schemes is that there's a lot of acceptance very globally. There's been a lot of work to actually make sure it works. As much as people complain about it, they do work 99.999% of the time. Uh, I would say for us, open banking is a good reliability, but definitely not 100% and definitely not that 9.999999 sort of level as well. And so I think um, we're cautiously excited, um, but a bit of a wait and see and let's actually see what happens in reality because we've run like thousands and thousands of payments there from banking with real customers and seeing when it fails and when it fails, it doesn't work at all. And so we're always having to think about, we can't rely on open banking solely for us. Open banking is a really important set of rails, but we definitely wouldn't build our business solely in open banking as it is today. And I'm really curious to see, you know, whether these changes will actually lift up the entire sort of the game of everyone, because I think the, the biggest challenge is actually just enforcement. Um, and, it's easy to say in theory, but I think the key thing is like, do the products actually live up to the standards that people talk about? Yeah, 
I think that's, I mean, that's that's such a, I suppose, a fair challenge. And, and, and it is like I completely accept that this is just an announcement at this point. And, and, and obviously, you're exactly right. We'll need to wait and see. Benjamin, I suppose if we were to just look backwards a little bit, you know, how successful has open banking been in the UK, right, in terms of what it's achieved so far? I think how successful it is depends entirely on what your expectations were. Um, I think this is a missed opportunity, honestly. I don't think this goes far enough. It's interesting listening to Elixir and Tim talking about all the problems with open banking today, the fact that the APIs aren't standardized, the fact the APIs don't work. We haven't, we've sort of skipped over variable recurring payments, VRPs. Um, as I understand it, those are still not mandatory, right? They're, they're sweeping uh, VRPs are mandatory, but all types of other uh, VRPs are not mandatory. Now, sounds like I'm talking about sort of technical stuff in three-letter acronyms, right? But a variable recurring payment is linked to an API, right? Which means suddenly you can do all sorts of stuff with it. But if those are not mandatory, then are all the banks really going to prioritize implementing them and making those APIs work really well? Well, no, they're not. I mean, we're already talking about, hey, what, how do you enforce all of this stuff? So I think it's a real missed opportunity for the UK. You know, you look at what India's done with the whole India stack and UPIs and so on. Boom! explosive growth in, uh, in opportunities and capability and so on. And you know, here's the UK that in a post-Brexit world needs to be a real innovator. I don't want to come down too hard on it, but I feel there's a, an opportunity missed. You know, if you want the UK to continue to be a fintech leader, you know, um, I'm, I, it needs to be more than sort of you know, mildly interesting. It need, you know, the UK needs to be setting out a standard and I I don't think that's what this does. I don't think this goes far enough. I think this is a missed opportunity for the UK, and I'd love to see us going further, because to answer your original question, has open banking been successful? Yes, somewhat. But there's so much more opportunity, and it's being held back by poor APIs, downtime, all the issues Tim was just talking about. Can I just pick on a Please do. couple pick yep. up on a couple of points, not pick on Ben, pick up on a couple of points made <laughs> by Ben. Um, I can't let you pick on Benjamin. And I would not do that at all. Um, I think on VRP, I, I think we can have a, a separate conversation. But I think that the thing that's positive is that we have something to progress because we've been in a holding pattern with open banking for the past three years. It hasn't gone anywhere. Uh, and the point about what is or what is not mandatory, I agree with Ben. I think it's crucial. What this, this report does say is that it will address the, the regulatory framework. So the report can't mandate that VR or non-sweeping VRP is mandatory, but it does say that there will be a regulatory framework. Uh, and that's when we get to the discussion about what should and should not be mandatory. And of course, from our perspective, we would love to see that, you know, uh, accessibility for VRPs and APIs for VRPs are mandatory. But then we get into that whole uh, discussion about commercial APIs and, and cost, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> But that's that's I think that's exactly the discussion that we should be having, and that's 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 what I'm talking about is the, the ambition of what's the ambition for fintech in the UK? Yeah, and you're right, and I I do, but I mean that's a discussion that started because actually there was a report published by one of our members, TrueLayer, uh, setting out its thoughts on. Um, variables recurring payments. I mean, NatWest obviously provide those APIs and, and have published their contract for VRP. I, what I think is positive about the report is that it actually gives a, a regulatory lens to say, actually, because it name checks VRP, it says we want VRP, we're going to be involved and we want there to be a multilateral framework agreement at the end of it. I think one of the, the big challenges in the report um, which is understandable because we're all time constrained and resource restrained, but it is a challenge given that I agree with Ben, we are behind the curve now. We were ahead of the curve. We've exported a lot of our knowledge. And if we want to stay at that point where we retain that level of knowledge and expertise and are look to be world leading, we definitely have to up our game, is the timelines. Because this document goes out to 2025. And... Um, when I was reading it earlier, there is a lot of, and if necessary, we will consult. Now, I I'm genuinely hope that means it's consult in person, round tables, 
um, Zoom webinar, whatever, and not paper consultations, because that requires a regulatory framework and certain timelines. And if it's if it's that sort of consultation, we're not going to meet any of the timelines. I'm also hoping that we can move the dial on VRP much faster, um, because if we're having to wait till 2020 five before that's up and running then you know we really should just pack up our bags now yeah i think it's that scope of ambition and then that speed of execution Alexa, as you quite rightly say that i think is going to be absolutely key to whether the uk can sort of compete again really in this space and actually if it's got ambitions to become um a real leader again in this space so one definitely to keep watching okay so we are just going to take a quick pause here and we will be back with you very shortly a lot of you know 11fs for our chart topping podcasts our events videos reports and a bunch of other cool stuff that we do but what a lot of you don't know is that this is just all our side hustle we do so much more than that at 11fs ventures we're partnering with ambitious businesses around the world to design build and launch truly digital financial services we are building banks shaping new propositions and growing existing offerings that change the fabric of financial services and our design research strategy strategy and engineering experts are working to improve your customer's relationship with money. To find out a little bit more, check us out at 11fs.com forward slash ventures. Welcome back. Before we get on to the second half of today's news, a quick note to go check out the latest episode of our FinTech Insider Insight show. How do community banks stay relevant in 2023? That's the important question Benjamin is digging into alongside our very own Kate Moody, as well as guests from Bridge by City and Seattle Bank. So go check that out wherever you got this podcast and let us know what you think. Now, let's get into our next story. And this one comes from UK Tech News with a headline, Credit Card Challenger Yonder scores £62.5 million Series A. So the credit card challenger company Yonder has raised £62.5 million in Series A capital, consisting of £12.5 million in equity and £50 million in debt financing. The Series A funds come from Lead Investors North Zone and RTP Global. Founded by three ClearScore alumni and launched in 2022, Yonder aims to tackle the problems expats with no credit history face when applying for a credit card in the UK. The firm uses open banking data to build a more nuanced, personalized picture of its customers' spending habits and suitability for credit. Yonder plans to use the investment to double its team to 35, extend its credit rewards into new verticals such as sport, fitness and theatre, and to launch in new UK cities. So Tim, um, obviously fantastic to have you here uh, with us to discuss this. And firstly, congratulations uh, on the raise. I know that... um, You've talked to Yonder a little bit in your intro, but I know it's a, a product that sort of comes out of your own lived experience. So maybe you can tell us a little bit about that and then the, the problem that you're looking to solve for, for customers. Yeah, thanks, Voss. Um, yeah, so I mean, my personal experience was I had a chance to live in five different cities, London being my city now. I've been originally from Melbourne, Australia, as you can tell from the accent. And I spent some time living in Nairobi, in Phnom Penh, in Cambodia, and also in San Francisco Bay Area. And I found it very bizarre that every time you moved, not only did you have to find a new place to live, find a place to go and eat, you had to reset your entire financial life, quite literally back to zero. And when I moved to London about five and a half years ago, I came with no credit score. And despite having like a mortgage in Australia, multiple credit cards, I still remember going to the local three shop and they wouldn't even give me a postpaid SIM card. This is not a phone, by the way. This is just a SIM card. I think it was about five quid a month. And they said, no, you're going to have to buy a prepaid one and top it up each time before you run it down to zero. And this is a very bizarre problem. And I actually saw this firsthand at ClearScore. The nice thing about ClearScore is one of the largest credit checking services as well in the UK and saw quite literally, you know, almost a million customers sign up and struggle to essentially find their credit report and, and realize that this opportunity was huge. And but we could like solve this using open banking and at the time it was around 2017 2018 and open banking was sort of at its early infancy stages where there was quite a lot of talk about it but not a lot of execution if i'm quite honest Uh, a lot of white papers written about how you could use open banking for underwriting and no one had really built a business off the back of it and so we realized that 
you know, drawing from our knowledge at ClearScore and seeing how open banking could actually be used for underwriting, we could actually go and build an entire business powered by open banking based underwriting. But actually, we started to dig get the problem even further. We were interviewing quite literally hundreds of customers, expats, young early professionals with thin credit files or no credit files. We realized that the opportunity was much bigger than just better underwriting. But actually, it wasn't just an access problem, but people, when they moved to a new city, actually wanted to really unlock that sort of excitement of a new experience of moving to a new city and make it feel like more than just going, I'm getting a financial product, but going, how can we actually play an important role in helping them experience more in a city as well? And so we came to the conclusion that we had a chance to reimagine people's relationships with credit cards from the ground up. So not just the underwriting, but also the product experience, making it far more consumer first, making it more transparent, and then making the rewards program something a lot richer than just cash back and points you can use at supermarkets or airline miles, but actually really creating something that would put the experience at the center of it. And I think we spoke a lot about how Apple had done a tremendous job creating an extremely consumer-led experience, being more than just utility. And for us, we realized that actually we had a chance to make something that was truly rich in terms of a user experience beyond just a financial access problem. It's one of the most, I mean, I guess just frustrating, certainly from the end user perspective, catch-22s, isn't it? You know, you set up in a new city and you can't get one thing because you don't have another thing, but you can't get that thing because you don't have that thing. Um, what, what Tim, I guess, does the, the sort of average yonder user look like? Yeah, so I, I guess the average user is sort of the 20, 20 to 30-year-old with a professional job, software engineering, investment banking, management consulting or marketing, with the average income, quite frankly, well above the UK average, you know, 60, 70, 80,000 pounds income. And a lot of them are just excited about moving to a new city. They've either been in London for a couple of years or have just moved recently. And funny enough, the word yonder is a very old word, but it actually sort of means this idea of in the far distance. And we always describe our yonder customers as customers who spend more time thinking about the future than thinking about the past. And so our customers are, are customers who love to go and explore, whether it's going to different restaurants, bars, events, travel, and just ex- essentially become a tourist in the city. Um, we always think about our customers are like, they, they kind of move with this real excitement of not just a new job, uh, but actually what they can do as a business here, whether it's meeting new friends uh, and really sort of discovering the best of the cities as well. I love that. It's almost about sort of like removing just those unnecessary points of friction, kind of getting them out of their way and get, getting out of their way and allowing them to sort of explore and make the most of this exciting opportunity, which is moving to a new city. Um, Benjamin, what were your thoughts on this one? I think it's fascinating that some of the potentially best customers of financial institutions get served so terribly badly because they've moved countries. Um, and a lot of it stems to problems of you know systems that were just designed for a different world or systems designed by people who didn't think about international migration. Um, so you know the, the credit scoring models um, just it doesn't work for people who are new to a country and the, the failure to connect international credit bureaus and enable someone to port a credit system, sorry, credit score from one country to another creates huge problems for a group of, as, as, as Tim said, very, you know, very appealing customers, exactly the customers that many financial institutions want. They are turning away and it's daft. And so, you know, Great news! Well done uh, <laughs> to you and your team at Yonder for doing exactly what so many great fintechs do: is they find a problem, find a customer problem, and they go fix it using modern technology and show all the other firms, "Oh, look, you should have been doing that." So, you know, congratulations to you and your team for fantastic work and trying to improve the lives of you know hundreds of thousands of people who have exactly this problem just in the UK and you know millions more in countries you know right across the world. Yeah. It's honestly, it's such an important problem um, to try and solve and try to get right. Alexa, I think Tim touched on it um, a little bit already, but it'd be good to get your thoughts on how open banking is actually changing, I suppose, the concept of the credit score and maybe easing some of these uh, frustrations for end users. Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's making that ease of access to the data in order to provide a different type of information that can give a credit score. I mean, that's so vital. And obviously, uh, a product like Tim's that can leverage that open banking data means that it's uh, it's a smoother process. I mean, what's fantastic about, um, you know, this model is it's a real life 
a lived problem, you know, and those products that are successful are ones that address real life problems, not just the ones we make up and think of oh, this would be useful. I mean, this will be really useful to so many people. And the fact that we have open banking data and hopefully going forward we'll have open finance data is actually going to make that assessment function, that ability hopefully also to port data easier. Yeah, absolutely. Again, such a huge opportunity. Benjamin, just a quick thought from you. I think a lot has been made, especially I suppose in the context of buy now, pay later, that, that maybe credit cards are on on the decline, I think particularly in a Gen Z context. But that's not necessarily the case, is it? You have to think about a credit card as multiple components, right? The, the credit card is an amazing product, but it's actually, it's a revolving personal loan. Uh, it's a card, physical card form factor and it's a connection to a global payment network. Now, those three things are different. I think the physical card form factor is gradually falling into decline, though it is very convenient and it does fit into your pocket, but, you know, people are using phones, etc. So that's in decline. Buy now, pay later. Actually, you know, do I want the... Do I just want to buy certain things or do I actually want revolving credit? So I think, you know, buy now, pay later appeals to, to younger people and so on. But actually, a lot of those firms are trying to get those longer term relationships. So they kind of are trying to get back to revolving credit and having a, pay, a form factor that you can use anywhere in the world. I mean, one of the few problems these international migrants that, that, that Tim and his company are serving is that actually their cards from Australia or wherever do actually work. In at least when you move country, your payment card does still work. Yeah. So I don't think the I think the credit card the card form factor is in decline. I don't think revolving credit um, or global payment networks are in decline. Uh, yeah, well, I think I think it's really interesting as this concept that history repeats itself. There's a really interesting history book uh, called A Piece of the Action. It's quite a nerdy 400 page book on the history of market money making funds and history of credit cards. It's about 400 pages. I would not recommend it unless you really like this stuff. Um, but what's interesting is that credit cards were developed at the time where installment loans were at an all-time high in the US. And Pineapple Palette isn't a new product fundamentally. Installment loans at a point of sale has been around for quite literally decades. And the credit cards were actually born at a time when in the US, people struggled to keep track of all the many, many installment loans they had. And the idea was well, if you're struggling to keep track of all the installment loans, what if it could give you a single product that would lump all the payments together in a single revolving credit line? And actually, a lot of the core fundamental building blocks of the credit card when it was born in the 1950s and 60s had the exact same features as an installment loan, a one-month free interest-free period, which, by the way, is exactly the same as buy now, pay later, which is six weeks interest-free period. Most credit cards have a 55-day interest-free period. And actually solved a lot of the problems that consumers had when they had 10, 12, 14 installment loans, which we now see is a big problem today where many consumers have many buy now, pay later loans sort of all at the same time and still got to keep track of it as well. Um, and we actually kind of think about this idea that they actually coexist and they serve fundamentally different jobs to be done. Uh, we actually think that credit cards are really useful for things like day-to-day -day spending because you get payment protection, you're spending someone else's money, our money, uh, you build credit score with it, and it gives you this really flexible cash flow management that buy now pay later doesn't. And we speak to a lot of our customers and how they use Yonder. And a lot of them, you know, ask, ask, say to us, hey, I just um, had a huge unexpected expense and I'm just using it to manage a couple of months of cash flow. And these are customers that can't easily sort of buy now pay later things. So for example, my flights back to Australia end of year is about four to 5,000 pounds. And that's a huge cash flow outlay. And for us, it's really useful to put on the credit card and then pay it off. Uh, either 55 days for interest fee or pay it off over a couple of months and pay a small amount of interest that you can transparently manage. Um, but, but really, I think buy now pay later is really, really valuable when you have a single item that you want to borrow for and you know what you want to borrow for. And credit cards are much more flexible for, quite frankly, day-to-day -day spending. Uh, most of our customers use Yonder for their day-to-day -day spending, like a debit card experience, paid off monthly, paid off weekly, paid off daily, and use it for the benefits of awards, protection, and things like that, but then have the optionality of switching it into Revolve mode where they want to use the borrowing facility as well. And so we actually think they coexist quite nicely, and it's not an all statement. It's actually an end statement where they exist together to serve different jobs to be done in the same way a personal loan or car finance exists for another job to be done, which is long-term financing 
or finance even asset. And so we think about the same, the coexistence of these products uh, rather than one being better than the other. I I completely agree. I think that's um, that's such a useful distinction. Also, well done on like whistle-stop tour on the history of credit cards. And also it's so interesting to hear how sort of cyclical, I guess, these things are, right? You're back to some of the same problems that maybe you had with installment loads that credit cards were designed to solve with some of the buy now, pay later stuff. So, but listen, um, such an exciting time for you guys. Um, and just to echo the panel, I mean, huge congratulations and I'm excited to see where you guys go from here. All right, I'm going to move on to our next story, which comes from Retail Banker International uh, with the headline, Kaiju Bank rolls out metaverse initiative to promote sustainability. So Spanish lender Kaiju Bank is one of the most active users of metaverse technology among Europe's big banks. Now they are hoping to use virtual reality to promote two other core priorities for the bank, which are sustainability and their, quote, all-in-one centers across Spain. Visitors to Caixa Bank branches between the 20th and the 27th of April will be able to participate in a virtual reality experience that is designed to raise awareness of how to contribute to creating a cleaner and more sustainable world. The activity will consist of a virtual tour in which participants will have to overcome a series of challenges in different natural environments. Participating customers will virtually enter forests, beaches, and even the bottom of the sea to solve missions that will help them raise awareness about the need to care for the environment. So to hear why the metaverse is an important tool for Kaiju Bank, we reached out to their innovation manager, Alvaro Castillo. At Kaiju Bank, we see the metaverse as an important tool for our digital innovation. And we see metaverse infrastructure as a means to improve efficiency and customer as well as employee experience. In 2022, our digital services lifestyle platform called Imagine became the first European fintech to establish an active presence in the metaverse. We've been exploring different applications of the metaverse and setting up virtual reality projects. For example, we've created 3D replicas of physical branches and signed a joint innovation agreement with Microsoft. For us, the metaverse is useful to promote initiatives that showcase the bank's commitment to the environment, financial innovation, and social responsibility. Earlier this week, we launched an interactive experience that raises awareness of how to take better care of the environment. These metaverse experiences are available to customers at the Caixa Bank flagship hubs, what we call our all-in-one centers located throughout Spain. It's just one of many ways we are using tech to help our customers. All this helps keep us one step ahead of them and offer a better services. Yeah, it's a super interesting one. Maybe Nalix, I'll come to you first for your reaction on this one. What do you think? What are your thoughts? I think the metaverse is obviously, um, it's a universe that's probably not clear to everybody. Um, I think it probably helps to maybe break it down into what the metaverse actually is, which is, um, from my perspective, it's, it's virtual worlds that connect to each other. Um, and I suppose virtual worlds are actually not new. Um, if, if, you, if you're a gamer, I think, you know, although you may not be sort of fully digitally and 3D immersed and visible and transact, I mean, you are transacting in these worlds, you know, you're used to virtual environments. I think the change with the metaverse is that it's bringing the virtual and the real life of where you can actually do, uh, I call it real life, I don't know what other terms to use, but where you can, you know, transact and do things that you would do in real life in the metaverse and it has some meaning in that you could transfer value, you can buy things. Um, uh, and that's a very basic explanation. And, and you know, I'm, I'm sure that others will tell me that I've got it totally wrong anyway. Um, but I think from a financial services perspective, it's, it's interesting that, um, you know, banks like Axia are, are entering the metaverse, are thinking about how it's going to be useful for them and for their customers going forward. And of course, the challenges that they're going to have is, is how does 
the reality of, say, money and financial services actually translate into these virtual worlds and these uh, digital assets? Um, and how are you going to be secure as you transfer digital assets? And how do you prove your identity? Because you'll need a, a, a verifiable digital identity. Yeah, I wonder if we're yet to see really a sort of breakthrough use case, I suppose, particularly in a financial services context. Um, Benjamin, what are, your, what are your thoughts on this one? So I love Kaisha Bank. Um, I love sustainability. Uh, I love innovation. If you don't test, you don't learn. I think this particular opportunity, I'm glad they're only running for a week because I think probably trying to teach people about environment and sustainability through a metaverse may not be particularly successful. Um, but Good for Kaisha Bank for trying to think about it. I, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm very skeptical of this whole idea of, hey, we'll build bank branches in, in the metaverse. It's a load of nonsense. Um, but I think what Nelixa was just saying about, well, actually, if you think about how people are gaming, you think about the, you know, the commerce involved in gaming, in all sorts of other applications and so on, that's where it gets really interesting. I think there's huge industrial opportunities for using the metaverse to, to train people on all sorts of things, to have people doing things remotely, um, you know, in, in, you know, where you've got experts who are physically remote from um, places that you know, are hard to reach and so on. I think that gets really, really interesting. So as you start thinking about, okay, how do payments work in that kind of environment? How do you create, as you say, Alexa, how do we create identity? Um, that's where it's really interesting. So I think this particular experiment, not terribly interesting. I mean, I, I don't want to knock Kaisha Bank. I think Kaisha Bank's great. I think they do a load of great stuff. I think this particular initiative is not something that, that everyone's going to be piling on and following and saying, oh, wow, that was really innovative. Um, but I think exploring that world and working out how do, how do we enable commerce in that world makes a lot of sense. I think educating people about sustainability is crucial, uh, educating younger generations. So if you can use gaming to get people thinking more about sustainability, great provided that the metaverse itself is not using so much energy that you're actually contributing to the problem rather than solving it. Yeah, so I suppose pointing out at the right problems. Um, Tim, final final word to you on this one. What were your, what were your thoughts? Immediate thought was why. Uh, I feel like there's a bit of this, we should go and do it because everyone else is talking about it. But actually, to your point about gaming, I came from a young background of gaming a lot and there was like a very clear use case for in-game items like it, it made your experience in the game better and you wanted to be in the metaverse it wasn't called a metaverse it was just you wanted to play the game and the e-commerce just happened because you were playing the game whereas i kind of feel like a lot of this is just like forcing things into places that just shouldn't really belong and in these worlds they were very natural places to do commerce because you had characters and items and you had natural ways to, okay, we need to have some sort of currency to buy some sort of in-game item. And so it felt like a very natural progression. At the moment, it kind of feels like we're just forcing things into things. Like in a good example is like when people use blockchain and all of the questions is like, why can't there just be a database? It's like, well, because it's blockchain and it sort of feels like a lot of this is, hey, I think Metaverse has a really important role to play and I think it is valuable, but... I think a lot of the time it's sort of just shoehorning things in there because it sounds cool and doesn't actually serve any fundamental problem. I think good on them for trying, but it sounds a bit of a weird one of like why there are so many other great ways of doing this. It's sort of like starting with a tool first. <laughs> no, but I think it's such an important point that you make, right? Situating things in the right relevant context, I think is important. I also agree with you, like the metaverse is not going away. It's not going anywhere. Um, so one that we will definitely keep an eye on um, and start to solve some of those those problems maybe that Benjamin was talking about. Um, okay, now for the section of the show called Big Click Energy, a quick fire roundup of some more clickworthy news this week. Um, Benjamin, I think you've got one for us this week. I do. So this is from Canada's Financial Post. Actor Ryan Reynolds adds payments company Nuve to portfolio of business interests. So Canadian actor Ryan Reynolds may not know much about fintech, but that isn't stopping him from adding Montreal-based payments company Nuve to his portfolio of business interests. Nuve, which produces payments processing technology, announced that the Deadpool actor was now an investor. The company declined to specify the terms or size of the investment, but Reynolds appeared alongside Nuve chief executive Philip Fayer in an interview with CNBC to discuss his interest. The actor said the move had, has been two years in the making, but made it clear that his knowledge of the sector is limited. I know nothing about fintech. Thank God I'm not running the company, he told CNBC. 
Reynolds also appeared in a promotional video for the company, playing up their Canadian roots with various aboots, moose, and poutine. Let's hear a little bit of Ryan Reynolds and his Canadianisms. Hit it! It's about technology. It's about the future. It's about teamwork. It's about poutine. It's about moose. It's about a boot. And I guess it's about hockey. I also think it's about simplifying payments. But to be honest, I've kind of lost the thread here. Nouve, tomorrow's technology company today. So Ryan Reynolds has become a bit of a cult hero um, here in the UK because of his uh, purchase of football team Wrexham. And Wrexham is in this kind of rags to riches story as it tries to get promotion um, back into the sort of mainstream football leagues. Um, and it's going through this kind of fairy tale uh, thing. So Ryan Reynolds, massive sort of cult hero now uh, here in the UK as well as Canada. So we can't get enough of Ryan Reynolds here. Um, I think it's great when some of some of these actors actually are very astute. Um, I'm thinking of sort of Ashton Kutcher, you know, invested in a whole bunch of tech companies, and that can really help to raise the profile of certain companies. So, you know, good news for Nouvet because actually just it gets them into the media, it gets them a bit more promotion. And I think you know, high profile investors like actors and so on can actually lift the profile. Of of companies, so I'm, I'm, so I reckon Tim's going to be you know getting on his bat phone to Ryan Reynolds and seeing if he can get a bit of an investment into Yonder too. So interesting story. It's I mean it's just incredible, isn't it? Um, I love that one. Okay, um, let's bring everybody back for the final section, looking at a more light-hearted story from the week. So this one comes from the Guardian um, with a headline: Game of Thrones stars challenge big banks over fossil fuel links. So Game of Thrones stars Kit Harrington and Rose Leslie are co-starring in a Richard Curtis short film highlighting the toxic relationship, that's a quote, between UK high street banks and the fossil fuel industry. The couples therapy film is part of Curtis's Make My Money Matter campaign to raise awareness of how consumers' cash may be financing industries that are destroying the planet. In the film, Harrington and Leslie play a couple sitting on a sofa in a therapist's office attempting to work through their issues. It gradually emerges that Harrington's character represents a high street bank and has been hiding his love for Leslie's character, who represents an oil company. The film ends with the pair kissing passionately and an on-screen message saying that, quote, our banks are in a hidden relationship with fossil fuel companies that are fueling the climate emergency. Help them break up, it adds. The campaign calls on the big five UK banks, Barclays, HSBC, Lloyds, NatWest and Santander to stop financing new oil, gas and coal expansion and said it was inviting the public to join it in, quote, pressuring them to stop. Now, let's hear a little bit of the clip um, of the short film with Kit Harrington portraying the big bank and Rose Leslie as the oil company on the therapist couch. People have certain expectations of me. I can't just be open about every aspect of my life. See, this is what he does. Whenever he speaks publicly or posts about anything on social media, he acts as if he's a martyr. I mean, he believes that he's saving the world. Oh, he is constantly posting about the millions that he's spending on green energy. See, the green energy thing. I mean, what would you want me to do? Post about the billions I give you every See, year? He will tell everyone that he now loves renewables. Oh, look at me and my pretty little windmills. And then he turns around and tells me that he loves me. Well, which is it? I mean, uh, this is this is a good one. Listen, Tim, I'm going to come to you first for your reaction on this. What do you what do you think? I think it's hilarious. I love it. Yeah, it's good, right? Yeah, I think it's just a such a fun way of communicating. Such quite honestly, a hard message to get across. I think it just does in such a playful way. So I love it. I think it's just a really really uh, interesting way of like bringing this issue to life. And I didn't even know this was a problem to be honest until I heard this. Yeah, I think it brings it to life. I think it draws attention. Alexa, do you think this is going to have a have an impact on uh, big banks' decision making? I think it's definitely going to draw attention to the challenges that this industry has. Um, finance and um, sustainability are big buzzwords now, anyway, aren't they? Um, how financial services are more sustainable going forward um, is a key topic across 
the globe. And um, this this issue of finance funding fossil fuels it's not a new one i mean there's always there's been products over time i believe where it's like you know we don't invest in these funds we don't fund fossil fuels um it, it, it is a challenge um i think it's it's going to generate a lot of discussion around the topic i guess look it's definitely shining a spotlight benjamin and maybe holding a mirror up to uh some of the big banks but the truth is, you know, we are destroying this planet and this planet is not going to be here if we continue in the way that we're going on, right? The world is on a completely unsustainable course. People have got to understand that and and try and act and put pressure. It's really fascinating how the insurance industry has really woken up to this in the past five to 10 years because they realized, wow, we were investing in funding these companies that are actually then causing directly or indirectly all of these natural disasters that are then costing us a fortune. So the insurance industry has kind of woken up to it. The banking industry hasn't. And the only way the banking industry is really going to change because like, you know, if you're an investment banker, you know, you make money, right? You, um, doing it is going to be through pressure from public. Of course, the trouble is other investors will then come along, investors that are not subject to public pressure. So, um, you know, big investors from dictatorships and other uh, markets where you really basically can't put any pressure on them. And, you know, so there will always be people who invest in destroying the planet. Um, but that doesn't have to be companies in democracies that are investing in dis- destroying the planet. Uh, you know, I was going to ask, go around the room and ask people's favorite Richard Curtis film, but I'm actually not because I think, Benjamin, you, you've summed that up so well. And I think it's actually important that we keep the focus on the sort of core fundamental problem that this is trying to raise so i'm actually going to close us there um so that wraps up this week's news show um thank you so much to all of today's guests um let's go around the virtual room where can people find out a little bit more about you benjamin let's let's start with you so i'm benjamin ensor i'm on linkedin but you can find out more about the work that uh, my amazing team is doing at 11fs.com yeah do check that out it is it is amazing um tim over to you yeah you can find me on linkedin as well tim chung and you can find more about Yonder at yondercard.com and also about uh, allocation for the crowdfund that we're doing as well on Cedars. Awesome, Tim. Thank you so much. Um, and Alexia. Hi. Um, yes, you can find me on LinkedIn and you can also find out more about the Open Finance Association on LinkedIn and via our website. Excellent. Thank you so much. And as for me, you can find me at Ross Gallagher07 on Twitter. Uh, and thank you for listening. Uh, join the conversation on social media or email podcast at 11fs.com. Thanks very much and goodbye. Goodbye.